Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Good morning. It's a beautiful day here in Northern California. The sun's shining. It's uh, looks like it's going to be a great day. And I have uh, I have Ryan Ryder, my guest from uh, from Hearst, Texas, here to talk talk us about a topic we've never covered before, and that is vehicular, if I can say it, vehicular crashes. So, uh, good morning, Ryan. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So where is Hearst, Texas, anyway? Um, We are in the northeast corner of Fort Worth, just between um, Fort Worth and Dallas. Okay. Okay. And uh, what's your weather like over there? You know, um, uh, really similar. Uh, We're up in the 70s. Uh, Supposedly some clouds blowing in right now. It's really nice and shiny and maybe some rain tonight. Well, there you go. I think I think we're expecting some rain soon too. So, which is a good thing with all this drought going on. So, so um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Ryan, your expertise is in. Uh, I guess it. I guess we call it in California accident reconstruction. Is that would be accurate? And in my business, I'm trying to change the mentality to a crash investigation. Okay. So we can take um, accident assumes that um, it's truly an accident. Most of the time, it's a um, some hiccup or um, traffic violation that causes an incident. So uh, anyway, two cars colliding or a car and people colliding or a car and motorcycle, mm. um, car and large vehicles. Uh, so right. we're trying to change that mentality of um, everything's an accident and they're all crashes until we can figure out what happened. Right. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah that's an that's an interesting concept. So, um, but you are kind of trying to reconstruct what happened is what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I spent the last 25 years uh, investigating them, um, grabbing the evidence and data. And then reconstructed them for uh, mostly criminal cases, and just recently retired and went into the civil side as well. Okay, okay. So you you just recently left um, the police department there? I did. I did twenty four years and uh, ready for retirement. A little bit of a change to um, continue my personal business, um, triple R investigations, and. Uh, specializing in reconstruction, but mostly going into um, 3D scanning and visualization of those crashes to help prosecutors, lawyers, and uh, investigators get it into court, help that visual effect with the uh, jurors. Okay. We'll get into the 3D scanning um, as we go through the show here, because I want to hear more about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. um, so, were you just tired of the police department, or you just wanted to retire and go into other things? Um, you know, it's a, a great question. I wasn't tired of it. It was a, 
Uh, it's a great career. I love it. Um, I got to the point where I wanted to support the industry, maybe impact it nationally as opposed to my little neck of the woods. Um, I did my time with citizens and helping them, and now I want to finish out helping the industry itself grow and and maybe get into some technology to help us solve cases and uh, go out um, in that arena. Well, that's a cool objective. Um, so I, I'm assuming you became a licensed private investigator in Texas. I did, uh, four years ago now. Yeah, okay. And uh, oh, we have to throw out a, a, a shout-out to Tally, Texas Association of Licensed Investigators, great organization of folks there. So uh, I'm glad you're a member of that. Yeah. Yeah, you're uh, you're all right. Great, uh, great folks doing a great thing, keeping the professional standards up, and uh, coming out of law enforcement. Love to see that that uh, uh, higher standards and expect everybody to um, work in the same focus. So, it's, so are it was you, a good mix for me talking. And are you surprised at that, Ryan? Uh, me personally, no. I, I love to see it. I don't. Um, um, you know, I just recently talked to some plumbers about their issues and licensing, and um, they've been working so hard to make their industry acceptable. It's the same thing. It's uh, mm-hmm. standards, procedures, best practices, and doing it the pr- appropriate way. It's not a way to get your pocketbook. I know DPS struggles. They make they don't make money watching us, uh, our license and stuff. Um, so... But yeah, I think it's the absolute best way to go. So DTS, you know, we're looking in, into people. Yeah, we're we're looking into people's lives, got their information, um, and we should be held to a different standard to protect that. Right, and you mentioned DTS. That that's uh, a li- the licensing agency. Well, in Texas, the Department of Public Safety right now um, oh. manages. The, the license for Texas. Okay, so so were yeah. you were you surprised when you came out of law enforcement and started working in the private sector that there were uh, high standards and the kind of things you've been used to working within law enforcement? Um, I was a little on the edge there just because I went through twenty years and very little interaction with private investigators and what they do mm-hmm. and knowing they had standards and association that I've been active with for the last four years was um, kind of odd that we didn't know more about them in law enforcement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or what they do or interact more. I think they privatized tend to go to the civil side, which is probably why some of that separation is. We don't see a lot of that work. So, um, um, yeah, so it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a total shock, but it was uh, definitely um, kind of a, a good, you know, it was a comforting move to know that that was the way to go, that not just anybody can start that. It's a, um, a good, um, anyway, education and learning and being a professional standard is um, what any kind of industry should look forward to, and that's the way to do it, and Callie's part of that group doing that. So, um, Ryan, 
I see on your uh, your bio that you got a master's in in uh, criminal justice, and I was particularly interested in your thesis. Uh, to, can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, part of my going back to school was to uh, um, challenge myself and see uh, um, what what I could take it to the next level for. It was a great um, opportunity and uh, actually opened my eyes up into research and um, developing research and criminal justice is getting more and more acceptable to that. And uh, so I really um, dove into it. My focus was to see how the industry I was working in and the crash industry um, um, what what their next step is, what, where are they going next? Um, we got a lot of good um, organizations, uh, good standards, scientific um, acceptance in court. And um, what I came to was um, um, through these scanning technology, um, at least in Texas, was um, being looked at. It was... Um, Pricing was coming to a level where public funds and budgets um, could purchase the equipment and then grants could help. Mm-hmm. And uh, overall, it was uh, <clears throat> uh, when you get into the um, group that I was involved in, meaning the specialists that investigate crashes, mainly um, deaths and serious bodily injury, where it's a criminal act, is uh, that group really wants to. Um, make sure we get all the information, evidence, and data available on crashes in order to prosecute. So they really think that's a big move um, to document the scene, show uh-huh. all your evidence, um, show time and distance, slide to stops, everything that we look at. Um, now we can go into a 3D arena and get that vertical aspect that we haven't been doing much of in the past and improve our business. And um, if we get through the price, we're actually seeing that we have a chance to reduce our time on scene and get more evidence. Okay. So uh, in a nutshell, that's what I looked at and was was able to determine amongst more things, just open the door that um, we need to get out there and find out what's going on with that um, 3D scanner industry in in the public safety arena. And just how that kind of digital technology can really am- impact the results you get. Oh, it is. We're going from, <clears throat> you're looking at just a general stat of a half-inch accuracy on crime scenes and crash scenes when we measure pull tape um, and the human factor to millimeters, um, you know, under a quarter inch. That's a big jump, and you're talking... A um, couple of hundred data points to millions of data points um, collected to um, have information. And um, that's just the crash industry. You're looking at major crime scenes with big events. Um, mm. uh, you get into, uh, you look into unsolved cases and mysteries and why, did, why wasn't something addressed. And a lot of times you find the lack of evidence that wasn't documented well. 
And with these, you can visit that, revisit that scene over and over again in a 3D arena. Mm-hmm. And eventually, that's going to that's going to be a norm, and we're going to be doing it in virtual reality. So it, it's just it's going to grow. Okay, that sounds. I mean, that, that's really exciting. Um, now, you've mentioned in your literature, there's about five and a quarter million accidents. Well, accidents, collisions every year. Mm-hmm. That's that's amazing <laughs> when you think about it. That's those are figures nationwide. Yeah, and um, you know, our society's pushed to to um, travel and get from point A to point B, and um, as much as we do, um, it's just odd that we we accept that as, as much as we do, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of that's aggressive behavior. Some of that's distractions. We had phones and too many things to do inside a car other than drive. And, and now we're adding automation that's supposed to help us be safer. Mm-hmm. So um, you got a big change in how we're getting around and and traveling and on the ground at least. And uh, but yeah, we still um, we still kill people too many times a year and uh, mm-hmm. we try to address that with safety, but um, you still got somebody driving the vehicle, which is normally causing the crash or being too aggressive or too much speed or weather conditions. We still can't address any of that. Um, we, we, I guess we, a lot of people come to um, snow, rain, wind, bad weather is the cars are better. So it's okay to drive the speed limit. Well, that's the maximum you need to back off. It's really not that mm-hmm. that way. And of course, so, everybody fights the driving while impaired. So that that's still a black eye on the road these days. So I have to ask you, Ryan, what do you think of the self-driving cars? Well, it's scary. Um, I love technology. I always support it. I hate that we put them on the road and actually already have a, have deaths associated with it, but um, yeah, uh, people are too uh, willing to accept that it's going to work and it's not understanding. <clears throat> you know, so you got Teslas driving underneath 18 wheelers because the technology can't see the 18 wheeler turning sideways and, mm. you know, just some things that um, are unforeseen in that that um, it'll be worked out um, in the long run. But uh, yeah, that kind of testing is. To me is a little bit different. We don't normally do that in this in the U.S. Meaning, uh, have equipment out there that's it's being tested, but that can kill people. So, right, um, that's, <laughs> that's opened up a new world. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you know some of that's operator error. You know, it's uh, it's not totally automated. You're supposed to be paying attention, not looking down at a book, or um, totally checked out. Um, but people are doing it and. You know, they're driving 5,000-pound vehicles and just letting it go. So, Darn, you, you mean I can't uh, take a nap while I'm driving my, my self-driving vehicle? Well, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the, the side effect of my business is, you know, I, I try to go back to the basics and just do the basic driving, but they're trying to make it, e- you know, easier and easier. And I say, well, if you want to get that point, get you a chauffeur and, um, you know, pay it. You pay the same for a Tesla. You do a chauffeur, so 
Right. Let them drive yeah. you around. Right. So let's let's talk about um, when you get when somebody contacts you to investigate uh, a crash. Tell me what your steps are. What do you what do you ask them? And let's let's go through that process. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, it's, uh, uh, we're really detailed. Uh, you can imagine just any any crime scene. We uh, in the in the crash business, there's a lot of data to be collected, a lot of evidence um, left behind. So, um, initial thought is, of, um, well, you want me to approach it from the criminal or the civil side? Well, let's let's do both. Let's let's tackle the okay. civil side first, and then let's go back to the criminal. Okay. So with civil, it's a, um, um, you, this stop there is uh, everything happens, and then you find out about it later. So they're easily behind the curve. So you're relying on um, reports and information gathered by law enforcement on the scene. So uh, you know my first. Uh, approach there is to uh, gather all of that and um, see what we have. So normally you're looking at a, a state report, which basically identifies who was driving, who was involved, what the conditions were, where the roadway was, um, and what they were told or found that occurred on that incident. And uh-huh. uh, that report is submitted. Um, if it's serious enough, you may get some pictures of the scene and to show um, uh, the damage, uh, maybe some roadway evidence, and um, try to document it that way. If it's uh, really serious, then they're going to map it anywhere from um, a total station, which is kind of like what a surveyor uses to survey a house or a building, up to a scanner and where everything is measurable um, on the scene. And then there may be um, other reports on the civil side, not much past that because there's no, probably unless it's commercial vehicle, nobody's going to get any kind of blood testing or breath testing. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so from that, I'm, I'm looking at, um, you know, where are some gaps? And then I, um, a site visit is, um, a big for me because we're all visual and that helps. So I like to see the site. Um, I just recently did a um, rearing crash, fatality crash and um, we documented that scene and within six months the, the roadway had changed, the ramp was moved mm-hmm. and that scenario had totally changed, it was gone. So we all, all we have is our documentation. But going out there and seeing um, that kind of information can't tell you if there's a um, a roadway, if there's a hill crest, or are we on a curve, or is it a big curve or a small curve? Uh-huh. Um, what other elements are there? Um, did uh, did their diagram represent the scene appropriately? Um, it's really common to understand that, but maybe not get all your witnesses. So there may uh-huh. be witnesses out there to add to the event. Um, for some reason in crash industry, people think they have witnesses of those that see the crash, but um, people that see um, before and after are almost as, if not more beneficial because they see behaviors 
leading up to the event? Was it um, odd or different or normal? And mm-hmm. after the event, uh, who helped who? Who got out of what vehicle? Um, who was in what seat? So, um, mm-hmm. you know, all that tells the story of eventually what um, we're looking at in the end run. I mean, there's always an operator operating it, but um, distractions, other things in the car can occur. Can a car cause, be that first initial cause of a crash? So um, there's a lot of details, and with cars, like we talked about, um, self-driving, mm-hmm. you have airbag modules. So if you're in an event where the change in speed is enough to deploy your airbags to make you safe, um, the cars are documenting all that data. So we know speeds and seatbelt situations and airbag deployments up to five seconds prior to the event. Mm-hmm. Um, how much energy was passed between the vehicles on the contact, um, what happened afterwards, how much were you steering, were you trying to steer into something, were you um, mm-hmm. static, uh, were you on the brakes. Uh, we can get a lot of information off that, which um, when you level that up into a criminal event, that's a lot of uh, evidence against sure. one side. So. Typically, so, um, uh, we can get all that same information that the cars were saved and they weren't like rebuilt or destroyed or sold or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. You can still gather all that in the civil arena and uh, have a, you know a lot of strong information. So, um, are you getting all this information from the car's computer, its black box, or whatever you want to call it? all this data about steering and braking and all that. Where's that coming from? Yeah, most, yeah, most your um, uh, data such as that showing braking, seatbelt status, uh, steering input is um, all from a, just an electronic control module that uses an inclinometer. So it, it detects I have a certain change in um, speed. So it's mm-hmm. detecting a crash. And then it says, um, so for instance, it says I'm going to deploy the airbags, but then even that, if, if there's no, if the passenger seat isn't occupied and it's switching on, that airbag won't deploy, it, it will stay. And then if it's a side impact, then you may have side airbags that are deployed to help, uh, side impact. So mm-hmm. all of that has, it, it's wanting to know, um, it documents speed and all that stuff just because it's there, but it's really wanting to know that change in speed to say something bad is happening that we need to protect the, the people. Uh-huh. And then uh-huh. that's when it switches to airbags and deploys them. Okay, so... Yeah, it's just a module that's tied into all that. It's, it's all it's all been there for a long time. It's just um, switched over the airbag to help it make that decision. And then, you know, now it's controlled so we can... Um, learn more about the crashes themselves. So for people like me that don't have any idea what this is, uh, so how do you go about getting that data? Um, uh, two ways. One is um, you can get a court order to uh, pull that information. Um, normally, if it's uh, gone into the civil arena, both parties are probably going to sign off a consent to um, get that data to the expert. And uh, it's a matter of um, getting into the wrecked vehicle, um, either hooking up to that module with um, computer equipment to download it, 
or physically, if some of them get are bad enough that um, we just have to cut the box out and remove it and then uh, download it separately. Why wouldn't yeah. you always take the box out? Uh, why wouldn't we always? Oh, yeah, um, why wouldn't you just always take it out? Uh, I, I think you are. If there's any kind of uh, civil criminal liability, they're, they're, they're going to be removed, but a lot of... Uh, minor crashes uh, that are just property crash, you know, just uh, um, property damage and maybe no trip to a hospital, just some soreness, and um, you're not gonna, you may not need it there. Um, some of them, it's, it's probably going to grow, meaning um, you can still get that data and still it doesn't affect the car. In other words, I can still replace the airbags, get that data, and put the car back into service. So, mm. um, okay. Uh, I think it, uh, it, it's growing. It's uh, it's uh, more acceptable to do that. Maybe learn. Maybe an agent wants to know if there's liability, so they authorize somebody to go pull that. But um, normally, it's right now. It's just if it's a question of who's at fault or liability. Is there a corporation involved? Meaning, are, are they protecting liability because of their vehicle? Um, those and above is what usually that data is pulled and collected for evidence. Okay. Okay. Interesting. You know, um, Ryan, we need to take a quick break. Um, this is probably a good time to do so because I have a lot of, a lot more questions to ask you about this. So we'll be right <laughs> okay. back. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com need to hire a private investigator ask for their professional association affiliations when an investigator asks francie kaler about associations she says to first join a state trade association francie belongs to the california association of licensed investigators or cali it's the largest association of its kind in the world cali's main focus is networking training and legislative advocacy if you need a detective in california contact cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350- C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back from our break here. I'm uh, I'm discussing uh, um, collision reconstruction. I keep wanting to say accident. I'm trying to correct myself, Brian. I'm here with hey, Brian. You're doing good. <laughs> I'm here with Brian Ryder, and we're just talking about what happens with vehicle crashers, crashes, and the kind of technology that's available. So, so if I called you, Ryan. Um, Say I'm an attorney. I guess that's most of your calls on these kind of cases. If I'm an attorney and I call you, what kinds of questions are you going to ask me, and how are you going to proceed? Yeah, great question. Um, well, uh, you want to be at a point, or you're calling me probably because you're at the point of a decision of do we go forward or and fight this thing. So I'm going to... Um, I want all your data, so I want everything we can get. I want um, all the reports that, um, on the crash um, that occurred, um, probably going to be from law enforcement, um, any kind of medical records on the people involved, mm-hmm. body cameras from law enforcement on scene, um, catch a lot of aftermath and information that sometimes does not get documented, and um and then I'm going to start looking into the uh, um, situation where it happened, um, gather my data, do my analysis, and um, it boils down to, uh, you know, what happened at fault, um, is there liability, um, you know, wh- what decision was made when, and, uh, um, you know, so the big thing, um, I guess the, the top one is always speed, uh-huh. speed involved that caused this, and um, you know, we have injuries or we have life-changing moments, you know, somebody can't work anymore or somebody has a, um, um, you know, now they're medically, they can't do what they were meant to do for the next 20 years. So uh-huh. uh, we're, look, we're looking at that. What caused that? Was that a bad decision, bad driving? Um, you know, there may be some history there as far as the driver Did it leave up to that and uh, get us here. But mainly... This one event, and what can we have, and then what can we from this? What can we prove up in court to show what happened? So we do a lot of just basic um, uh, physics stuff, uh, you know, time and distance. Uh, a lot of times, like if you get a left turn, somebody turning left, um, big factor there is usually speed. Meaning, if somebody normally used to turn in left, but they're on a 40-mile-an-hour roadway and somebody's going 90 miles an hour, uh-huh. most people don't register that speed. They just register a vehicle coming at an appropriate distance where they can make it. So you look right. at stuff like that, and um, we have to prove have to prove up visually that that's not normal, that's abnormal, and people do tend to turn left in front of that because they would have made it at 40 miles an hour. Uh-huh. But at 90, they get hit and then it's very drastic, you know, very bad situation from there forward. So um, that's what we're going to do and it's a strategy. So um, some get down to the, um, you know, time of asking for a court date and then they have to decide if they're going to bring an expert with it or are they going to, are the lawyers going to discuss it? 
And if um, normally if one says, I'm going to use an expert, the other one has one retained to um, work on the case as well so they can defend, um, you know, what's said and what's brought up in mm-hmm. the courtroom. And then um, our biggest, as an expert, once I get in there, what I can do for you is try to um, use these visuals that we're talking about and my knowledge, but... Um, at a point to help um, a jury understand what happened here because um, because of the injury, death, the money involved uh, are usually very um, uh, high in crashes, so they're very dynamic. It's not just a neighborhood, you know, fender bender. It's uh, cars crashing and rolling, um, uh, mm-hmm. cars hitting cars in the side, not, not a whole lot of metal between you and the other car. High speeds, uh, weather conditions, impairment. Uh-huh. So I have to, you know, show that those are all the cause of that. Plus, the way that these vehicles, you know, end up um, showing a causation is the end result. Can I show the cause of what happened to, you know, one operator? And, so uh, you don't. That's so how you we're don't. Work it. You don't typically get a call from an attorney right when they get the case or, or before they file the suit. You're, you're getting a call when they're deciding to spend more money as they're get, getting ready to well, actually you know, go forward with the case. Uh, thanks, that's a great question. Um, it's actually both both of those. Um, here in North Texas, I've got a couple that will call me right away and have me go document it. So they're already... To me, they're in a mentality that's very good for their industry. Right. And then if it ends up developing and going to court, um, then we ramp that up into a full study and um, how are we going to attack this case. How so, often? Uh, it, it's, it's much better if you start from the beginning. Um, right. Can't say now, if you get into like the big trucking companies or let's say, um, you know, big um, crane companies, have some liability issues, um, they'll have a team ready to go once an incident occurs and they'll go and investigate. But um, I think some of the top lawyers will probably start doing that and, um, mm-hmm. and document it right up front. And then if it develops, then they'll move forward because they're already ready to go. Uh, yeah, they don't all do that. A lot of them do it last minute. How often, Ryan, do you have to tell the attorney that they need to get the body cameras and the this and the that, that they haven't done that or they weren't aware of it? Is that something you is that's a frequent conversation you have with them? Actually, not really. They're, they're usually already gathering that. They usually already have um, folks that do that right away once they have the case and they've accepted it. Mm-hmm. Um I would say you know, it's probably grown in the last five years, but um, yeah, for the most part, what I've seen is, especially on the scanner stuff and the mapping stuff, which is scaled measurement, is agencies don't have a system available to release it, and it tends to get overlooked. So we've had to point out that you have this, and we need to get it, and um, it's not they're holding it back. It's just that they haven't figure out how to put that in the system of public uh, release. Mm-hmm. It's in a different, um, it's, it's, it's new data. It's usually from the traffic or the investigative unit. Um, so anyway, that'll 
you know, that'll change a little bit. But usually right, right now what I'm seeing is that the one element that is missing, most of the time we're getting body cameras and um, reports um, in there. Some of the forensic stuff doesn't get passed on. We have to specifically ask for it. Uh-huh. One said they didn't have it. I said, well, when I can see the total safety mapping equipment in the picture on a crime scene, <laughs> I'm thinking you have that evidence. So That, um, that could be a clue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need to um, just readdress that and find out where it is. I think you have it. You just don't know you have it. So let's talk about 3D scanning a little bit. Tell us about 3D scanning <laughs> and uh, what is that and what kind of equipment to use. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so 3D scanning is um, it is a laser scanner, just kind of like a, a, a pointer. If you're doing a presentation, you use a pointer to point something out the screen. Um, uh-huh. But it, it actually takes a laser, bounces off any an item, whatever it sees comes back. And with that data, we know how, how far out it was and where that, uh-huh. little, where that point was. So with the laser scanners, what they're doing is they're taking that laser and spinning it and bouncing it off a mirror and doing 360 horizontally and 330 vertically and creating all this space it can see and that laser can touch in a X, Y, and Z format where I can regenerate it digitally. So I know all those distances that it bounced off of, um, I know where it's located in space. We can recalculate it. We can put it into software, regenerate it, visualize it. Um, and from that, we can go further. We can go way past that. So that's why virtual reality is kind of the next step because that's what VR does. It uses 3D space. Um, so these scanners are doing that. Plus, they take a, a camera and they take pictures and then they merge the two together, so I get a very realistic representation of the scene in the, um, you know, similar color. So the good thing about the scanner, especially in law enforcement, is if I'm in, if I'm in the middle of the night doing a crime scene or a crash scene, um, I don't have to use the photography, and I still can um, scan the scene in in darkness with a laser. It doesn't use any light. Okay, so Ryan, that's a big I'm, plus there. I'm trying to visualize how this works. So you said it's use use it with with mirrors. Is that what you said? Uh, well, the yeah, the equipment's about this. Let's see, um, what is it the size of? It's you know, it's probably uh, um, maybe a, a foot by foot, and maybe about eight or nine inches wide rectangle. So okay, a big camera and. Um, in the middle of it, they have a 45-degree angle mirror that spins on an axis. So when that laser hits it and bounces off, it can do a circle. Okay. And as it goes out, it, it, it's hitting everything. It's moving. At the same time, the camera is moving on a 360-degree axis to get the opposite direction. So okay. vertically, I can do one, and horizontally, I can do the other one. And as it spins and then cycles at 360, it's getting all those points because that laser is going out, hitting an object, coming back, and the the, um, the scanner is registering that data. Mm-hmm. And that's how it scans the room in order to get all those points, and it's measurable to be reproduced. 
and then we can verify that with scales and um, references to uh, on the measurement um, after we do that process. So sounds it's very like portable. A, um, <laughs> it sounds like a pretty expensive piece of equipment. Yes, uh, it's uh, it's ranging from uh, about twenty five grand up to about eighty five, depending on what you're trying to get. So with a uh, yeah, about eighty-five thousand. You're getting higher end, like uh, up on freeways, longer distance, um, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then you just. Um, but it is it's in order to get three dimensional, we have to move the scanner multiple times in its line of sight, meaning they can only scan what it can see. So, like if I'm on a car crash, I have to move it around the car and the roadway to mm-hmm. see the different angles, because like one car could block the other car or a brick wall could block the view of something. So we have to move it around, and then we use computer programs to match that up to make it one project. Um, after you do the eight, ten thousand scans, whatever you do, um, we use software to put those together and make it one big picture. Okay, and, so, uh, how yeah, often, so how you often can do you... At, at any, oops. So how often do uh, you, you use... You can, <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. How often do you use drones to map a crime scene oh, or a um, crash scene? That's interesting. Um, they're being more and more prevalent. Uh, um, got massive uses. Um, photogrammetry has been a while, long for a while, which is use of cameras um, at a distance to measure and scale and do three dimension diagramming, just like a 3D scanner. Mm-hmm. So um, the interesting part of that is um, with the 3D scanners, they do great on the ground and do well, but obviously um, uh, rooftops, bigger buildings, um, you know, you got to get it up there to do that. So drones have been shown to um, provide a lot for law enforcement, uh, public safety in the beginning. So um, law enforcement to help uh, find bad guys, chase them, um, uh, kind of surveil areas. And we can use it on this industry to fly over these areas and get a bigger picture of the whole area and then use the scanners in the, the, the smaller evidentiary areas because if you're looking at a highway, you want to show everybody that it's a long stretch of highway, a quarter mile. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of spending another hour with a scanner, I could spend 10 minutes in the air with a drone and represent the rest of that um, incident. So they're starting to supplement the two in order to get the big picture of the crime and the scene. Um, um, So it's, it's very beneficial. You're going to see more and more of it. What are the legal requirements for using a drone? That's a good one. Um, So uh, FAA has allowed law enforcement to uh, utilize drones and for public safety so they can uh, deploy them and, um, uh, use them appropriately. Um, they can go to uh, to the point of getting a release from the FAA to have their own program, or they can do um, the 107 FAA pilot's license, which is um, what everybody uses. And then you can do the same manner. You just, as a 107 pilot, you would just be flying for a law enforcement agency. Um, so you can deploy it on crashes, crime scenes, anything like that. Um, uh, but the uh, all, all the FAA rules apply, meaning if you're within 
um, five miles of an airport, then you got to get you have to get authorization. Mm-hmm. Um, we, in my area, we have some agencies that are um, well within that to the point of we have to get um, FAA to sign off on releasing the drones for clearance. So um, the drone manufacturer within um, a mile or less of uh, an airport is not allowing their drone to be used, period. So you have to go to the FAA to say, we're law enforcement. This is going to be used for public safety within, you know, the parameters of a uh, airport, and we have to do some software updates. But for the most part, we're doing the same rules as everybody else, mm-hmm. and uh, we're flying it for public safety. Um, fire departments are flying it, so they get on the scene, and they're getting a drone up to see how big are we talking about, or are there any other buildings being affected by this fire? Do we need to... Um, make this scene bigger, um, that kind of stuff. So they're using it for surveillance. Um, law enforcement sees it more and more, especially for crime scenes. So if we get an outdoor crime scene, we can cover a lot of space with a drone and get that visual down the road. We need it in court. So so now you're in private practice. Can you get that same access or, or not? Uh, yes, you can. Um, okay. So, um, so for commercial use, um, as a, I'm a 107 pilot, and I just ask authorization and pre-plan accordingly. So if I'm in an area that needs authorization, I send a request to FAA. I'm flying over, you know, 820 at 2 o'clock this afternoon, um, and I'm getting it to uh, document the roadway for a crash. Okay. Okay. And I go do it in that parameter, and... You stay under 400 feet easily, so FAA doesn't mind doing that, and they've documented what they want to see, and you're doing it the right way and doing it safely. And drone, drones still have to operate uh, from line of sight, right? Isn't that still the case? Correct. You have to be able to operate them as long as you can see them? Yes. Okay. Now, what about privacy? What about uh, consumer privacy? Uh, when it gets into privacy, it's when you're taking pictures and videos. So when we're doing something like that, we're taking um, straight, almost straight over the top uh, videos or pictures down on the roadway. Uh-huh. So all we're getting is roadway and tops of cars. So I can so identify it and tell you where it is, but I can't identify any of the cars, people. You know, I'm up 150, 200 feet. Even a person down there, I couldn't even tell you who it was. And then um, that way, that privacy is not of issue. What if it's in a residential area? Well, I, I think for me, it would be um, if I have to do that, it's going to be the same thing. I would I normally plan those trips to uh, um, do it on a low traffic time, so it's you know, Saturday or Sunday, early morning, late evening, where there's minimal traffic, and um, I'm probably going to only fly, I'm going to sit there long enough to fly when um, there's nobody around, less traffic. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do it where I, I try to plan it where nobody gets into the shots I take. Because the privacy is so, a picture taken away from the scene. I'm not going to, I don't do anything where I have to take backyard pictures or fly over houses or anything like that. I'm taking roadways 
um, public property kind of things um, that we we all travel on sidewalks. But if you have a say you have a small residential area, maybe narrow, narrow streets, and you're trying to to use your drone, um, it seems like you would just by nature of the space you would get uh, people's backyards and and things like that. So. Do you go around to the neighbors and tell them what you're doing? How does that work? Uh, that would be my best option. If I got put in that situation, I would definitely be preemptive as opposed to reactive. Uh-huh. Uh, anybody asking. Um, you know, when I train and do stuff around here, people talk to me, and uh, we have nice conversational, educational, you know, what if, what, what can you do, what do you do? Sure. And, uh, you know, everybody kind of um, enjoys that part of it. So, um, yeah, and, and the stuff the drones are being used for, it's mostly, like I said, really dynamic, higher-end stuff. Um, fortunately, we don't have a lot of those in residential areas. It's normally going to be in roadways, commercial, highway kind of scenarios. Now, if it's a crime scene for law enforcement, that's different, and the, the privacy thing isn't... Um, a part of that, they're going to take those photographs um, of those areas regardless. But once again, the distance you're up there, it's really, <laughs> you might document the property, but telling who's in that picture is going to be um, kind of a question. So, and are you using, uh, when when you do a criminal, I'm assuming you do criminal defense periodically, you do a criminal defense case, are you using the same right. kind of procedure? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it is what it is. It's evidence um, based on the scenario. So if it's if it's defense work, it, it can be used for the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, if if you get a case that's just really, um, you know, it may help defense and show the right picture and everything. Um, you know, that overhead top view and that aspect of that arena, it just really opens up you know, people as far as speeds and distance and what ifs. And, um, we have, you know, I know crashes where you have visibility. So, um, uh, if you're looking at crest of hills and turns where you can't get that visibility, um, you know, using a drone to say, you know, this is what it looks like. You can look at it really nice, but when you get down on the ground level, there's no way right. you can see right. a motorcycle coming from the other direction. Exactly. And uh, that's what helps people understand the scenario. So we have about three minutes left, uh, Ryan, uh, for the show. (laughs) Yeah, it goes fast, (laughs) I know. Uh, So what advice would you give uh, folks if they uh, wanted to, first of all, private investigators that wanted to look into this area of of the private investigation business or for uh, attorneys who might want to hire an expert? Oh, great. Um, yeah, the advice there would be just, uh, you know, reach out and talk and see what uh, we, what's going on. There's a lot of applications for scanners and drones. Um, and in my situation, I'm more than willing to help other investigators. It doesn't have to be my case, but I want you to get the right thing. We're doing more and more with cold cases, trying to re um bring those back to the surface, see what we can do digitally to help understand these cases. Um, so I'm more than happy to 
help the investigators get there. They can reach out for the equipment. Um, they can reach out for me just to partner with them on cases. Um, the lawyers are always open to, you know, what's the next step? What can I give um, these people to prove these cases up and this visual and um, data and three dimension, maybe uh, what they're looking for. So mm-hmm. I think it's, we're in an educational stage and getting it out there and helping them understand it. Um, you know, ask for demos. Hey, what can you do? What can you provide me? Help me understand how, um, how this helps me. And, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, what I think they would benefit from is, is that understanding it themselves. So when it comes about, they can apply it appropriately. Okay. Real quick, Ryan, why don't you give how you can be contacted? Yeah, our uh, website is www.triplerinvestigations.com. Phone number is 682-325-1442. And okay. emails and everything is on the website. All right. Well, we're out of time. And for the rest of you folks, I hope you enjoyed this program. It was fascinating for me. And see you next Thursday. It's PSD Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. PIs Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.